Life is hard. Suffering is a daily and sometimes hourly reality. The reason there are so many self-help books and so many therapeutic talk shows is because many people's lives are truly difficult and the suffering that they have to endure is often overwhelming. Many of us have had days where we weren't sure we were going to make it, where we wanted to throw in the towel, where we wondered if we were ever going to get a break. And much of that is just the everyday sorrows that come with living in a broken world. It's not anything that you or I did uh, that caused us to experience that suffering. It was not our fault. And then on top of that, for Christians, there is an added element of suffering that comes with following Christ. We live out of step with the world. We are often opposed and sneered at and sometimes even hated by others because of our faith. Our Savior suffered and called us to follow Him into suffering, taking up our cross daily to follow Him. So it's not a surprise that the Bible talks a lot about suffering. We would expect that. It's a significant part of our lives. It's a significant part of being a follower of Christ. But what is surprising is how often the Bible connects suffering and joy. That's something you wouldn't expect. Because when we suffer, oftentimes our default reaction... And the reaction that people expect from us, right, is for us to grumble, to complain, you know, to uh, be angry even sometimes, frustrated about the suffering that we experience. And yet the Bible, both by precept uh, and example, tells us again and again that our response to suffering ought to be joy. The apostles, for example, when they were arrested and beaten for speaking in the name of Jesus, when they were beaten, they rejoiced in their suffering because they were so happy to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Probably nobody outside of Jesus suffered more in the New Testament than the Apostle Paul. And you can read in 2 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 11 just lists of things that Paul endured. Shipwrecked, beaten, stoned and left for dead, imprisoned, falsely accused. And yet it's Paul who tells us that we should rejoice always. He didn't say that because he had a happy life all the time. He said that as somebody who had suffered more than most. Hebrews tells us that Jesus himself uh, endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. So if our natural reaction to suffering is sadness, frustration, complaint, almost anything other than joy... And yet the Bible says over and over and over again that our response to suffering ought to be rejoicing, ought to be joy. What are we missing? How are we supposed to and why are we supposed to respond to suffering with joy? 
Well, as we have come to Romans chapter 5 this morning, verses 3 through 5 in our study of the book of Romans, we have come to one of the places where it is most clear uh, and most thoroughly explained why we should rejoice even when we suffer. So I invite you to turn with me there to Romans 5, if you haven't already, and verses 3 through 5 will be our text this morning. This again is written by the Apostle Paul, who suffered tremendously. Right, so he was not, you know, don't picture Paul in a comfortable place with an easy life saying, all you people out there who suffer, here's how I think you ought to respond to it, even though I don't ever suffer myself. This is a man who was intimately acquainted with suffering himself. And here's what he says, verses 3 through 5 of Romans chapter 5. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, there in verse 3, when he says, not only that, he's reminding us of what he just said at the end of verse 2. So we're going to start there. At the end of verse 2, this is just a brief reminder. The end of verse 2, he says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Right, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, that is not unexpected. What he's saying is, we who have been justified by faith in Christ, we've turned from our sin, we've trusted in Jesus, and as a result of that, our sins have been forgiven, we've been declared righteous by God, we're welcomed into his family, and now we have the confident expectation, that's what he means by hope, not a wish, not a maybe, the confident expectation that we will both see and in some way share in the glory of God. The Bible says in Revelation 22 that uh, sort of the, the climax of the Bible story with the new creations, the, the new heaven, the new earth, when we are welcomed into the presence of God, one of the things that's going to happen is we are going to see His face. What Moses was not allowed to see, right? what the angels do not even allow themselves to see, in the new creation, we are finally going to see. We are going to get to see God's glory in all of its fullness. We are going to see Him face to face. And we're going to share in God's glory to a certain extent. Because the Bible also says in Romans 8.30 that all whom God justified, He also glorified. Meaning everybody who is saved by faith in Jesus will certainly one day be transformed into the glorious likeness of Jesus. The Apostle John brings this together in 1 John 3, 2, that when he says, When we see Him, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. When we see Him face to face, when we see His glory, we will be transformed as much as it is possible for a, a mortal human being to be transformed, although we'll be immortal at that point, raised never to die again. Right? As much as it is possible for a human being to be 
transformed into the image and likeness, the glory of Christ, we will reflect His glory more than we ever have before. That's what we are looking forward to. And Paul says we rejoice in that. We have joy because we know the end of our life, the end of our story is not death and then nothingness. It's not death and then hell. It's death and then resurrection and the glorious presence of Christ and being transformed into His glory. We have Joy because of what we know is coming in the future. Now, even somebody who's not a Christian, if you explain that to them, this is why I can be joyful in the face of death. This is why I can be joyful even though I'm getting older, my body's not working as much as well as it used to, and you know everything seems to be going downhill. But I still have joy because I'm, I believe on the other side of suffering and death is... The glory of Jesus. Getting to share in His glory, getting to see His glory, getting to dwell in His glorious presence. I have something good to look forward to on the other side of this. You explain that to a non-Christian, they they would say, yeah, I mean, I don't believe that. But if you believe that, I could see why you would be able to rejoice. That makes sense. But the second part of what Paul is saying here in verse 3 is not as obvious to people who are not Christians, and even those of us who are Christians sometimes struggle with this. So he says, not only that, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and that makes a certain kind of sense to everybody, not only that, but he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. You try to explain that to a non-Christian, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You rejoice in your sufferings? Nobody likes to suffer. Why would you rejoice in your suffering? Well, Paul didn't like to suffer either. right? Remember, Paul had a thorn in his flesh, and he prayed to God over and over, God, please remove this thorn. I don't like this pain, this suffering that I'm experiencing. Paul didn't like suffering. He's not saying that we enjoy it. He's not saying we rejoice because suffering is actually good. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that we rejoice in our suffering. Why is he saying that we rejoice in our suffering? Well, before we unpack why we rejoice in our suffering, let let me just give one more little reminder of how consistent a theme this is in the New Testament. I already mentioned you know, the apostles rejoicing when they were beaten for preaching in the name of Jesus. I already mentioned that Jesus endured the cross uh, for the joy that was set before him. Right? But Jesus taught this as well. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, Jesus said to his disciples, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice when you suffer. You're blessed when you are persecuted. Paul said in Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. The writer of Hebrews describes uh, what the believers that he was writing to, what they had experienced. He said, you had compassion on those in prison, this is probably Christians who are in prison for their faith. 
He said, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You, people broke into your house, took all your stuff, and you just were joyful. How do you explain that? James 1, 2 through 4. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How do we count it all joy when we suffer? Peter, in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 14, says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now that is not an easy teaching. But it is the consistent teaching of the New Testament. I confess that I struggle with this. I don't struggle with understanding it. I struggle with practicing it. It is so much easier for me to grumble and complain when things are going hard than it is for me to say, well, you know what? I've got reason to rejoice in the midst of this. And I I suspect that's true for many of you as well. This is not something easy. But it is biblical. It is important. So we need to find out what we're missing What is it that I need to do or understand or believe or put into practice that can help me imitate the apostles, imitate so many in the early church, imitate Jesus in rejoicing even when I'm suffering? Let's look at what, how, how does Paul help us with this? Okay, he says we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. So the first thing that Paul says about why we rejoice in our suffering is it's because of something that we know. We don't rejoice in suffering in and of itself. We rejoice because we know what suffering does. We know what suffering accomplishes. And we rejoice because of what we know suffering is going to do. Does that make sense? So we're not, we're not rejoicing in the suffering. It's so good to suffer. Right? We rejoice because we know what suffering accomplishes. Right, so um, if you don't know what suffering accomplishes, it's going to be hard to rejoice in the midst of your suffering. If you don't remind yourself of what you know about suffering, it's going to be hard to rejoice in the midst of your suffering. So Paul is telling us, here's why we rejoice in the midst of our suffering. We rejoice because of what we know, and you need to know these things, and when you're suffering, you need to remind yourselves of these things, because this is why you are able to rejoice in the midst of your suffering. So if you, if you struggle with this, like I do, it could be either that you've never really looked into or studied or been taught what the Bible says about what suffering is for in the Christian life, or it may be that when you are suffering, you 
don't want to think about what you know. You don't want to remind yourself of what you know. But if you remind yourself of what you know, it might help you endure that suffering with a more joyful attitude and less grumbling and complaining. So what is it that we know about suffering that helps us to rejoice? Well, he says we know that suffering produces endurance. Suffering makes us stronger. Suffering helps us to grow in patience, to grow in steadfastness, to grow in endurance. And this is why athletes choose suffering. Do you realize that there are people in the world who they choose to get up every day and punish their bodies, make themselves suffer day after day after day? Why do they do that? They do that because they know that it is only through suffering that their bodies are enabled to endure the hardships that come with competition. Right? College football started recently. Those boys punish themselves every day. They lift weights, they beat each other up, basically. They, they smack into each other, they run until they're going to be sick, and they enjoy it. They choose to do it. They love to do it. Why? Because they know the harder they discipline their bodies, the more suffering they endure during the week, the greater their endurance will be when they meet up against a bunch of other athletes on the football field. And if they can't endure four quarters of physical play, guess what? They're going to lose. So they like to go to practice. They like to go to the gym. They like to endure all that suffering because that's how they are made stronger. And it's not uncommon for Paul to compare the Christian life to an athletic competition in the New Testament. You see this in 1 Corinthians 9. You see it other places where Paul talks about how we discipline our bodies. We endure suffering. Why do we endure suffering? Why do we rejoice in our suffering? Why can we, in a measure, be glad that God brings hardship into our life? Because, Paul says, we know that with that hardship, comes growth, comes increased endurance. The more you suffer, the more suffering you are able to endure, the more hardship you are able to uh, go through. And then that endurance, he says, produces character, verse 4. Endurance produces character. The idea here is of uh, something proven through testing. Right? We talk about somebody having character. We don't just mean you know, their, their personality or what easily comes out of them from the time that they are born. It's the kind of person that they are. By character, we mean this is somebody we have watched endure trials and hardships, be put in difficult situations, be asked hard questions, be tempted to do things they shouldn't do. And we have seen them come through those tests and trials and temptations successfully. And so they have have proven character. They have shown themselves to be a man of integrity. He's shown himself to be uh, somebody who's disciplined or or a a woman who's always willing to speak the truth, even when it's hard, even when people don't want to hear it. Uh, This is a person with 
proven character. They have endured suffering, tests, trials, temptations, and their character has been proven. And we admire people like that. I think about somebody who has been through and survived cancer, not once, not twice, but three times. You hear a story about somebody like that, or you know somebody like that, you, you marvel at them, especially if you hear people say, you know, I, I have watched them suffer through these various rounds of, of chemo and various bouts with cancer, and they, they always seem to have a good attitude. They always seem to be grateful, joyful. I mean, they have hard days, but like, I'm just so impressed by how they are concerned about other people, even when they're suffering. What is that? That is proven character that comes through enduring suffering. That's what Paul is talking about. We can rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering makes us stronger, helps us to endure. And the more we endure, the more our character is proven. And why would we want to have proven character? Why is that important? It's important to have proven character because not everybody who says they belong to Jesus belongs to Jesus, right? You remember the parable of the soils? Jesus tells the parable about the sower who goes out to sow the seed and the seed falls upon various kinds of soil. Some falls along the path, some falls on rocky ground, some falls in a place where weeds grow up and choke it out, and some falls on good soil. Well, listen to what Jesus ex- explained about the uh, seed that fell on the rocky ground. He says, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, so they hear the gospel, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. They don't bear fruit. They don't last. What what is Jesus saying? He's saying there are people who have an initial positive response to the gospel, but then when things get hard, they give up and leave off following Jesus because they, they weren't really his in the beginning. They had no root. They bear no fruit. Well, how do we find out if we're going to be you know, a Peter or a Judas. Judas looked like a genuine follower of Jesus there for a while before he fell away. Peter endured some hardship, but he came out on the other side still trusting and following Jesus. How do we know which one we are? Only after we pass through suffering and we endure and we grow in character, then that character produces Hope. Why does character produce hope? Character produces hope because once we have suffered and endured and grown in character because of the testing that we've been through and and survived, only on the other side of that do we have now this more fully grounded hope that yes, I really do belong to Christ. I really am a genuine follower of Jesus, and I know that because He has sustained me through sufferings and trials. He has grown me in endurance. He has proven my character. And now that hope that I've had from the beginning 
is reaffirmed and strengthened and grounded because of what I've been through. So the hope he's talking about there at the end of verse 4, the character that produces hope, that hope he's talking about is the same hope as verse 2. It's still the hope of seeing the glory of God. It's still the hope of sharing in the glory of God as we're transformed into the likeness of Christ. Paul says we already have that hope from the beginning when we believe in Jesus. When we trust in Him, we have peace with God. When we trust in Him, we have our sins forgiven. When we trust in Him, we stand in a place of grace. When we trust in Him, we have the hope, the assurance, the confidence of seeing and being transformed into the glory of God. But there's also a sense in which that hope comes from enduring trials and sufferings and hardships. And if you've been a Christian for a very long time, if you think back, you probably know this from experience. You may not have thought about it this way. But when you're first saved, you know you belong to Jesus. You know you trust the promises. You trust Christ. You know He's died for your sins. He's risen for your salvation. You know your salvation is secure. But there is a certain measure of assurance that only comes from years and years and years of following Jesus. That assurance grows the more we suffer, the more we endure, the more we go through, the more, we come, the more hardships we come out of on the other side, still trusting in Jesus with our faith strengthened because it's been exercised, it's been challenged. There's a certain level of assurance that only comes from having passed through those things. That's what Paul's talking about. And so we are able to say, when hardship comes into, into our lives, I don't like this, I don't enjoy this, but I know this is for my good. I know what God is up to through this. I know that on the other side of this, I'm going to be even more confident that I belong to Jesus, that He's at work in me through the Holy Spirit, and that that means that I have every reason to be confident that on the other side of all this suffering that I'm enduring, there's going to be joy and righteousness and peace and glory that I'm going to get to see. Now Paul has one more thing he wants us to know about how this works in verse 5. He says, This hope does not put us to shame, Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, he's saying this hope that you have because of your faith in Christ, this hope that you have because of all that you've suffered and endured, this hope is not going to put you to shame. It is not going to disappoint you. It is not going to turn out to have only been a dream or a wish It will prove to be a genuine hope. How do we know that? How do we know that this hope is not going to abandon us when we need it most, right at the end? How do we know that it's not going to abandon us? Paul says, here's how we know. We know because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been poured out And He has been given to us. If you're a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And if you've been a Christian for very long, hopefully you are able to look at your life and say, there are things about who I am now that I can only explain because of the work of the Holy Spirit in me. I didn't used to be that kind. 
I didn't used to be that patient. I didn't used to be that loving. I didn't used to be able to get along with people at work that well. I didn't used to be able to get along with my wife, my kids that well. But the longer I follow Jesus, the more I'm able to endure, the more I'm able to rejoice, the more I'm able to love, the more I'm able to serve, to exercise self-control, to say no to these various temptations. And because the Spirit has been poured out into my life, I know I belong to Jesus. I know that this hope is not going to disappoint because the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of the inheritance that God has promised me, Paul says in Ephesians 1. But not only because the Holy Spirit has been poured out, but also because he says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us, we have also received the abounding, overwhelming love of God for us. We have been made aware at the core of who we are that we are loved by God. And how do we know that? We know that because of what He did for us in sending His Son to die on the cross for our sin. And we know that because of how the Spirit has made that, has brought that home to us in our hearts. If God has given us His Spirit and poured out His love into us, then we know that He is not going to let that hope we have in Him come to nothing. He is faithful. And he will complete the work that he has begun in us, Paul says in Philippians 1. So, it's when we put our suffering into that bigger perspective that we are able to rejoice in it. And it's still not easy. Knowing that doesn't make it easy, but knowing that does make it possible. Reminding yourself, I'm not suffering because God's mad at me. I'm not suffering because God has abandoned me. I'm not necessarily suffering because I've done something wrong. I'm suffering in part because I live in a fallen world. And I'm suffering because God is working for my good in all things, including this suffering. And only through this suffering am I going to grow in my faith, in my obedience, Not only through this suffering is it going to be proven that I'm a genuine disciple of Jesus, that I'm willing to follow Him no matter the cost. And all of that is grounding me more deeply in this hope that I have that on the other side of this suffering, God has prepared for me joy and glory beyond anything I can even imagine. And it's because of all that, Paul says, that we are able to rejoice even while we suffer.